0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
2: Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liut, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. David Katz, whose new book, How to Eat All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered, has brought him to the show today. Dr. Katz is a globally recognized expert on nutrition, weight management, and prevention of chronic disease. He's the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, the immediate past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the president and, co- and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative. Dr. Katz, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Janet. Good to be with you. Um, okay. So before we start talking about the book, um, you've got, you've got a lot of jobs. (laughs) You're a busy, you're a busy person. What are you, what are you spending? Um, like the bulk of your time, I would say like, um, doing right now in terms of your, you know, yeah. Professionally.
3: So I was at Yale in various capacities for, I think it's 29 years altogether. And and much of that time was spent as the director of the Prevention Research Center. That's a clinical research lab where we studied the prevention of chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, um, obesity as a risk factor for those. And, And we did all kinds of different studies, both randomized controlled trials and community interventions. I stepped out of that role in October of 2019 because I founded a company based on something I invented. I, I reinvented, so it's, it's actually relevant to what we're talking about here today. I reinvented dietary assessment so we could get at details of what someone's diet is now in terms of dietary pattern, diet quality, nutrient intake levels in under a minute in an easy, fun way. And that, that's a real breakthrough. So I wow. built a company called Diet ID. A lot of people can learn more at dietid.com. So I'm, I'm running a startup company through the extremely challenging <laughs> COVID economy. That's one yeah. of the things I'm doing now. Another is running the nonprofit you mentioned, the True Health Initiative, where we try to make all that we know about lifestyle as medicine, diet, and, and lifestyle practices and how much good they could do, try to make that common knowledge. We pull together a global coalition of diverse experts who stand together to defend what we know. And we're trying to help the public know it, use it. And then I've really been swept up, Jenna, in the policy response to COVID. And it's not because I'm an expert in pandemics or virology, but I am an expert in public health, epidemiology, preventive medicine. That's been my field for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I just, I tend to see the big picture. That's certainly relevant to my perspective on diet and health. It's certainly relevant to how to eat. Uh, but it, it's also landed me in a place where I'm talking about a middle path, if you will, with regard to COVID. And, and that's the idea that the virus itself can hurt people, can kill people, but we can also hurt and kill people with societal shutdown and economic collapse. And you know, I, I, I've spent much of my career focused on social determinants of health, how poverty hurts people, how mm-hmm. inequity hurts people. And my view is that any way this current crisis hurts people is bad, and any way we minimize the total harms is good. And and some of the minimization of total harm is about keeping people and the virus separate, but some of it is also about letting people at low risk of severe infection back into the world. And then finally, and this is where it all sort of comes together, with a career focused on nutrition and lifestyle and, and chronic disease... One of the interesting things about the COVID crisis is it takes everything that was essentially stalking us in slow motion, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and makes it an acute worry. You know, it, It's hard to get mm-hmm. people concerned about things that happen in slow motion just because of the way our brains are hardwired. If it's coming at us in seconds or minutes, hours, maybe days it activates the fight or flight response. You know, our adrenal gland gets worked up. We, we feel that anxiety. We want to do something about the danger. But if it comes after us in years and decades, like obesity does, like heart disease does, like diabetes does, like eating badly does, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of yawn and say, yeah, hey, we'll deal with that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes. In the case of COVID, everybody's worried. But actually the things that put us at higher risk are all those same things. All the chronic yeah. ailments that encumber health in in America, and that are perennially neglected are now acute concerns. That makes this a teachable moment. We can actually talk about reducing our risk for severe coronavirus infection and improving our health over time by doing the same things. And diet is a centerpiece of all of that. So this is a very timely conversation for us to have.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, how do you, I mean, my understanding, you know, is that for most doctors and certainly in, in, in med school, nutrition and diet is not a, fo- a big focus, certainly not what I think, you know, you may, <laughs> we may, we may agree that it, that it should be. Why do you think that is? And throughout your time in the field, have you seen this shift at all?
3: Well, it's not. And it's shifting, but not nearly enough. But even that's complicated. So so the reason it's not been a perennial focus, to be quite honest, is because the current structure of a medical education is all based on something called the Flexner Report, which was produced in nineteen ten. <laughs> Believe it or not. Wow. That's
2: yeah. A long time ago. That's a really long
3: time <laughs> ago. So we we need a new one of those. And and yeah. so the you know, the issue was then you know, really understanding germ theory, understanding anatomy, physiology, histology, biochemistry, cell biology, Uh, you know, that all made perfect sense. I mean, that that basically put doctors in a rarefied space. And the concerns about nutrition in the early decades of the 20th century were concerns about nutrient deficiencies. So Mm -hmm. we were worried about beriberi and scurvy and rickets. And, you know, these all sound like antiquated conditions now you know they're, they're sort of stories out of some dusty old textbook but that's what nutrition was at the time so if you did biochemistry in medical school you were learning everything you needed to know about nutrition there was really no thought about lifestyle as medicine then there was really no thought about the burden of chronic disease because it hadn't been recognized yet hadn't really happened yet and there was no real concern about dietary patterns because frankly that worked, was 50 years away. You know, we, we didn't first realize that coronary artery disease was related to lifestyle and preventable until the Seven Countries Study by Ansel Keys in the middle of the 20th century. So so medical education, frankly, rests on a foundation that predates the importance of diet, chronic disease, lifestyle. And, and we need a whole new foundation. That's a big job, though. You know, and, and I don't want to go... Too deep in the weeds here, but you know, mm-hmm. if you think about departments and medical schools and people who are chairs of departments and deans. You know, there's a lot of territoriality there. So you know, what what is now important is important because it's been important for years, and and so those departments are big. They get a lot of money. They get a lot of funding. They have a lot of prestige. They don't want to give that up. I mean, if we suddenly right. decided, actually, you know, it would be more important to teach medical students about nutrition than anatomy you know, the anatomy professors would, would have a revolt. You know, I mean, it's just, it's not that easy to take away control. So that's, that's part of the reason. But there's another side to this whole argument, Jenna, and that's the fact that, is this really a clinical issue? I mean, you think about it. If you live in a culture where it's normal to eat well, where junk is not a food group, where junk is not advertised to people as something they ought to eat, where everybody agrees with fundamental principles of eating well, and they reverberate through what families do and what's marketed and what's on supermarket shelves and what's in restaurants, what do clinicians really need to do about it? The only reason we need doctors educated about nutrition is because our culture prioritizes bad nutrition because it markets bad nutrition and favors corporate profit over public health. So I'm tempted to say, okay, yeah, given that bad situation, we need to educate doctors because the simple fact is diet is the single leading cause of premature death and chronic disease in America today, period, Mm -hmm. full stop, mic drop. So yeah, okay, I guess that makes it a clinical issue, but it shouldn't be. And in those places around the world where it isn't, where, where people derive health and vitality from their diets rather than chronic disease and obesity, it's not because their doctors are terrific. It's because their food supply is good. It's because the native diet is a health promoting diet. That's true in all of the world's five blue zones where people routinely live to be hundred, they don't get chronic disease. They derive health and vitality, longevity from their diets, not because their doctors tell them what to do, but because their culture makes eating well normal. So I'm, I'm of two minds about it. you know, as long as, as long as our culture is going to, misuse nutrition, yes, doctors need to be well-educated to try and contain that and fix it. But really the best way to fix it at the source is cultural, not clinical.
2: Um, okay. So I we, I have way more questions about kind of like the, you know, the obesity epidemic and then um, uh, very specific kind of nutrition questions. But before we um, get into those, can you just tell me, you know, in shifting our focus to the book, how you started, how you came to write this uh, with with Mark, and what what prompted the um, yeah, you guys to to embark on this together?
3: Yeah, no, I, I, I love telling that story. Mark is a really good friend, uh, and 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 the in, the interesting thing is that. Our relationship began with a, if you will, a civil argument. Um, mm-hmm. He he wrote a piece, one of his columns, and and I you know I've long been a fan of his, like so many are, and read his columns in the New York Times and elsewhere. So he wrote one of his New York Times columns about an epidemiologic study, and was suggesting that based on the study that sugar was a cause of diabetes, but obesity was not, or or something like that. Hmm. And it was wrong. And I wrote to him and said, you know, I'm a fan of yours. I love your writing. I learn a lot about food policy from you, but, uh, you know, with all due respect, you're not trained in epidemiology or research methods. And that's not what this study is saying. And I thought that would like be the sit end down. of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and, and if he were a different kind of guy, that would have been the end of our relationship rather than the beginning, because he would never have answered me.
2: Mm-hmm. But he's a
3: really good guy, and he said, "Hey, I think this guy's got a point." He wrote back a civil, uh, thoughtful, gentlemanly answer, and frankly, you know, the bromance began right there. The, the, you know, this is a, a guy who's willing to, you know, disagree and still have a conversation. So. A conversation began, and then you know, then when he had questions about studies or nutrition, he started asking me, and I would answer. And I, I, I gather, he was reasonably impressed with my ability to answer. And, and I started asking him questions about policy, and and you know, we really discovered how much we appreciated one another's perspective. We 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 shared the view that you know, both of us knew we don't know everything, and you know, when we're outside of our comfort zone, we're happy to ask somebody a, above our pay grade. And, and we started to realize we had very complementary knowledge. You know, I knew a lot about nutrition and health. He knew a lot about food production and agriculture and systems. And eventually, you know, as, as our back and forth developed and, you know, we were sharing lots of information, you know, I, I think it was Mark, but it could have been me who said, you know, we, we really ought to write something together. And the result of that was he pitched exactly that, a collaborative effort on, you know, sort of, you know, the science and sense of eating well to Grub Street and New York Magazine. So we did a piece together, the last conversation you'll ever need to have about diet and health or or something like that. New York Magazine called it something along those lines. Mm
2: -hmm. Anyway,
3: you know, I, I, I shuddered to use this reference during a pandemic, but it went viral. Uh, which used to be, which used to be a good thing, is now like the worst thing imaginable. But you know, back then it was a good thing, so it went viral. It was like the most popular piece New York Magazine had ever done, or some damn thing. Yeah, it
2: was great, and yeah. they
3: called it the Last Conversation. But inevitably, because it did so well, they asked for a sequel. Yeah, I always thought a sequel to the Last Conversation was something like Breakfast After the Last Supper. You know, it seemed a little oxymoronic to me, but I said, okay, let's go for it. So we did another one and and these were long form articles where we basically just fielded all kinds of questions. What about eggs? What about dairy? What about butter? What about meat? What about grains? What about lectins? What about gluten? All that. And we just kind of rolled with the questions and, and had this banter. And so it was fun and it was engaging and it was cheeky and we covered a lot of terrain. And as a result of those two articles we did together, we were nominated for a James Beard Foundation Award for health journalism, uh, which is, you know, big deal. They, they, they tell us that the James Beard Awards are, you know, the Academy Awards of
2: uh, of the food world. Deal. So
3: yeah. yeah, pretty big deal. It, it was really cool. It put on a tuxedo and a whole <laughs> bit. Um, so, you know, after all this played out, uh, you know, at some point we were talking to one another in, in the aftermath of this and said, you know, these were long articles, but there's more. We could do more. We can do a whole book. And we agreed we'd like to do that book. And so we, we took it to Mark's long-term publisher, um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And they said something along the lines of, hell yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here we are. And, and so we did the book just the way we did those articles, you know, that same conversational, pull up a chair, join us at the coffee table. We'll answer anything you ask. And you know, so we we gathered up a gazillion questions. Some of them were questions we just made up. Many of them were questions that had been sent to us. And and the way we did it, by the way, uh, Mark lives at a beautiful um, farm in in uh, outside of New York City, and I went there for several days. We sort of sequestered ourselves in a a literary cave of sorts uh, with beautiful views out the window, and. You know, he'd ask questions, and I would just talk, or I'd ask questions, and he would talk, and we just recorded it. and And after oh, wow. three days of that, we had one hundred and fifty thousand words, and then it was all transcribed, and then we we got <laughs> we got that mess wow. back. So okay, now we have to first turn this into a book, and and the book that you are maybe holding in your hands right now is, am, is the yes. result of that. There it is. Yeah. yeah,
2: that's and you certainly have a. I mean, it is it's so informative and it's fun to read, and it's. Um and it's an easy read. You know, you can I I, I couldn't put it down once I oh, picked it up and you, you break down yeah the information in like a really um in a way that I feel like is um is very very straightforward and informative. Um you can kind of walk away with like, okay, now I have it, you know, now I know what to, um you know, how I how many eggs I'm going to have in the course <laughs> of a week or, or whatever. But I have like um I of course walked away with even more questions because right, right. I can always I can always find a question.
1: <laughs> well, that's so
3: good. Well, Maybe there'll yes. be a you know part two of how to eat. Yeah,
2: exactly. No, so um um all right, just like the first the first, my first question for you around around the book is what was the most commonly asked question? So, um you know when, when thinking about actually this is also the course of your career. Like when asking about diet, is there one question that you get more so than others.
3: Yeah, I, I think people want, you know, sort of the, the $64,000 question is there a best diet? What diet is right. best? Yeah, so that, that reverberates through the book. And in 2014, I was asked, or I guess it was earlier, the paper published then, but um, the annual review of public health editors asked me to do a review article. <laughs> And that was the question they gave me. They said, "Answer this question: Can we say what diet is best for health?" And um, and actually, that peer-reviewed paper sort of went viral. Last I checked, it had been downloaded well over a hundred thousand times, which is unheard of for a peer-reviewed paper. So mm. that's that's the big question. And by the way, the answer is both yes and no. So if if we're talking about a general theme of optimal eating for Homo sapiens, uh, yes, absolutely, we know that sensible balanced assortments of whole minimally processed foods mostly plants that's the way to go without question so if you mostly eat minimally processed or unprocessed vegetables fruits whole grains beans lentils nuts and seeds and if you mostly drink plain water when you're thirsty
2: mm-hmm. you
3: will be doing diet right if you really mostly do that then whatever else you do you know will alter the character of your diet so it'll be pescatarian if you add fish and it'll be Vegetarian if you add dairy and eggs, and it'll be flexitarian if you add a bit of poultry and meat, and it'll be Mediterranean if you add a little bit of dairy and a bit of meat and a lot of extra virgin olive oil, etc. You know, so it can be all the different diets. And and by the way, that that same dietary pattern, real food, not too much, mostly plants, as Michael Pollan put it. You know, that mm-hmm. could be low carb or high carb. It could be low fat or high fat. But that basic theme is not negotiable that is the right diet for our kind of animal. We are a kind of animal. You know, it's really mm-hmm. interesting, Jenna, how we tend to forget that. So you think about the best way for dolphins to eat or horses to eat or koala bears to eat or giant pandas to eat. And it's it's perfectly obvious that, you know, they, they may all differ as individuals, but the way they ought to eat is based on the kind of animal they are and their adaptations. And the same is true of us. And this is the dietary theme that is responsive to homo sapien adaptations. But if the question means, you know, is there one best narrowly defined diet that's right, that's mm-hmm. the best? You know, can, can we say Mediterranean's better than vegan, vegan's better than flexitarian, flexitarian's better than vegetarian, low carb is better than low fat? Fi- All of that's just nonsense. All of that's just somebody trying to sell something. The answer is right. no, we, we don't have decisive proof that any one specific dietary pattern is optimal for human health outcomes. The only one on the list that you could argue really deserves a second look is a vegan diet, but not so much for reasons related to human health outcomes, because all of the good diets are plant predominant. But if you want your diet to have a minimal environmental footprint, and and Mark and I get into the environmental impact of our dietary choices in the book as well, and if you want your dietary pattern you know to minimize the harms imposed on species other than our own those three lenses start to provide you a pretty clear view of the reason why veganism is worth considering but i you know we're not ideological about it we we basically say everybody should move in that direction because it's better for human health it's better for the planet and it's kinder and gentler to our fellow creatures but whether you go all the way or part of the way as long as we move in that general direction everybody's trading up and it's it's good for all three
2: the thing about you know like veganism is that and this is just kind of my personal experience i see a lot of vegans eating really unhealthy ultra Good point. processed foods. Good point. And so right. when we, when we talk about like, you know, vegan diets, I think it's important to be super clear on how you define it in the book. And that is, you know, like you said, mostly plants beans, legumes, not like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Well, like a yeah. Tri- yeah leche eat, cake. That's vegan. Well, what is that <laughs> right. Well, you know, a
3: diet of nothing but Coca-Cola and cotton candy could be vegan, vegan but it would yeah. be dreadful. Right. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. So remember when we talk about dietary patterns, all of them must honor the theme. And the theme is real food, whole food, minimally processed food, plant predominant, sensible, balanced assembly. That's not negotiable. Once, you, once you've established that, then you can talk about vegan and flexitarian and Mediterranean and low carb and low fat and you know, all of those are options.
0: But mm-hmm. if instead
3: you don't talk about the theme and just start talking about <laughs> veganism, then absolutely. A vegan diet can be fantastic, and it can be dreadful. A low-carb diet can be great, and it can be dreadful. A Mediterranean diet could be done badly. Um, And and certainly the typical American diet is routinely dreadful, and you have to work really hard to transform it into something like the DASH diet, which you you could argue is sort of the optimal version of the American diet. So, right, you got to start with food. And by the way, that's really a critical consideration and one we emphasize in the book. Let's talk about foods and and how we put foods together to make a dietary pattern. Let's not waste our time talking about macronutrients like low fat or high fat because you know again a low fat diet could also be Coca-Cola and cotton candy, terrible. Or right. it could be an optimal balanced diet that is made up mostly of foods that just happen to be low in fat. And a high fat diet could be a diet of, you know, uh, pepperoni and bacon, which would be terrible, or it could be the famously Nutritious, sustainable Mediterranean diet, which is also high in fat, but that fat comes from nuts and seeds, and olives and avocado, and a little bit from dairy and seafood. So, you know, again, a lot we do a lot of disservice to the goal of optimizing diet by having the wrong conversations. The right, right. conversations start with foods, and you get the foods and the patterns right, and everything follows from that.
2: Okay, so you say so. What I'm hearing you say is like also not all calories are created equal, right? Of so course, like of course. Okay, so you can have um so you know, so that what I'm thinking of, I'm thinking like of an avocado or a handful of walnuts or something. Those are very caloric you know i i grab like a a handful of walnuts and it's like 200 plus calories plus i you know who whoever eats like a fourth of a cup like the serving sizes and and nutrition facts panels are a conversation we can have later but um in thinking through like i mean those are those are nutrition like nutritionally dense really good foods but in thinking about like weight loss isn't the bottom line, like, if you take in less calories, um, then you burn off, you will lose weight. So I, I kind of like have a hard time squaring those two ideas, basically.
3: Okay. So we, we, we cover calories extensively in the book. And our view is that calories count, but nobody wants to spend their life counting calories. And so the way you deal with that is to acknowledge, as you just did, that different sources of calories are not created equal. But it's not just the number of calories in a food that determines whether you eat more calories than you need. It's also how filling that food is. So let's let's digress for just a second, Jenna, and refer to a different book than ours, Salt, Sugar, Mm -hmm. Fat by Michael Moss, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist. And then an excerpt from that book that was a New York Times Magazine cover story. I really like that excerpt. It's entitled The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. We talk about this in How to Eat. So what what Michael talks about in that essay in the New York Times Magazine is that all of the major food companies have teams of scientists, mostly PhDs. They give them functional MRI machines and any other technological goody they might like. And marching orders to design food people can't stop eating until their arm gets exhausted from lifting it to their mouths. And when they've done that, they get a bonus. That's called the bliss point, and they're literally engineering food you can't stop eating. You, you remember? Maybe this was before your time, Jenna. Remember the Lay's potato chip ads? Bet you can't eat just one. Yeah. Yeah, that, was, right. a right. that, was, that was a threat. right. I can't. Nobody can. But it's by design. They won. Basically, a bunch of teenagers <laughs> got a bonus because they made that true. So, so that's the thing. So it's not just the number of calories in the food; it's whether or not the food fills you up highly processed foods are literally engineered to A, be addictive or nearly so, and B, never fill you up. So you eat more of them, buy more of them, and basically spend your hard-earned money on making some corporation rich while you get fat and succumb to diabetes. Uh, On the other hand, unprocessed foods have generally the opposite property. They tend to fill us up on many fewer calories. So you could probably overeat raw avocado, but on the other yeah, hand I can. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. But you know, you find me the person who can blame obesity or diabetes on an avocado and you know, or eating avocados, and I will give up my day job and become a hula dancer. And <laughs> and the same is true of unprocessed walnuts or almonds. So these foods, although they are energy dense, they're rich in calories as you described, they're very satiating. They're simple, pure flavors. They don't stimulate the hypothalamic appetite center the way highly processed foods do. They are not engineered by anybody other than good old mother nature. Uh, They're not addictive. Um, They are rich in nutrients and they're rich in fiber, which tends to be quite filling. That's true of avocado. It's true of walnuts. It's true of other nuts. They're radically different from highly processed foods. By and large, The problem with obesity in the modern world, it's not nuts, it's not avocados, it's not foods that are concentrated in calories. It's highly processed foods that are both concentrated in calories, dilute in nutrients, and unsatiating. You just keep eating, 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 eating. And that doesn't tend to happen with natural, simple unprocessed foods. So, so, you know, again, we explore this at length in the book. And our conclusion is, yeah, you can overeat nuts and you could overeat avocado, but these are marginal contributions to uh, the risk of overweight in any individual. And certainly they are nominal contributions to epidemic obesity. The big problem is highly processed food. You stop doing that. You stop drinking soda. uh, you will find that for the most part, you fill up on the right number of calories. By the way, my my own personal tactic here has Mm -hmm. always been to eat exactly as we're discussing, to eat a diet of minimally processed foods, mostly plants. I've done it my my whole adult life. And I've never counted calories. I've never gone on a diet. I weigh about what I weighed when I graduated high school. Uh, You know, my weight's never fluctuated up or down more than a few pounds based on different things. And, you know, it's because you eat the right kinds of foods and your appetite center takes care of the rest. It really does work.
2: Um, Yeah, I think, but obviously, as you acknowledge, it's harder, harder. Um, It's not, it's simple. And I feel like as a society, we really want to complicate that. Um, But I feel like it's harder in. Practice. Um, it, is, anyway. it, is,
3: and, and it is especially Jenna because of our culture. So you know, again, America mm-hmm. runs on Duncan. Junk is a food group in this country. There's massive food marketing. Uh, we we have an endless bounty of highly processed foods which are engineered to be hyper palatable. And one of the greatest determinants of dietary preference is familiarity. We learn to yeah. love the foods we're with. So if we're with a diet of junk food. We learn to prefer a diet of junk food, and then you have to talk people into eating real food. So, you know, absolutely, we're, you know, we're, we're constantly exposed to the very foods that make it hardest to control portions, to control calories. So, yes, in practice, I totally agree with you. It's simple. That doesn't mean it's easy.
2: Right. Okay. So, eat mostly plants, vegetables. How many vegetables should we? eat in a day like and what what constitutes a serving because i mean this is something yeah this is I, I, I do you remember i don't know if i made this up but i swear to god there is a campaign like in the 80s or 90s called strive for five
0: yeah, and there i don't are know some.
2: whatever like i feel like there, not a lot of people remember that but so <laughs> that is still in the back of my mind you know and i'm right. like okay what does this mean like five, yeah, five they- different vegetables like how how much can you break yeah. that down
3: yeah, sort of. So, yeah, so that was, the idea was five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, and and for the most part, a serving was a cup, um, but it varies really with the particular kind of vegetable. So it was smaller for starchy vegetables like potatoes and bigger for leafy green vegetables, and it differed a little bit for fruit. But you can think of it as a cup of the unprocessed vegetable because vegetables are bulky. It's actually one of the things that's good about them; they take up a lot of space that helps them fill us up on few calories. But that was the idea. And and by the way, the, the science actually suggested that the average adult should be getting nine servings a day. But as you say, the national campaign was about five servings a day because the the concern among policymakers was, you know, we'll never get Americans to, to nine. <laughs> so let's <laughs> let's set the bar in some place that's not too intimidating. And and the reality is that there is no one size fits all answer. Uh, because, you know, some plant foods are pretty dense. You know, so for example, there's a big difference between a cup of cooked lentils and a cup of lettuce. A cup of lettuce is nothing. A cup of cooked lentils is, is a lot, both in terms of nutrition and calories and, and, and filling you up. So it, it really varies considerably by the the type of, of food. And then of course it varies with you because you know, if you are small and inactive, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, 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 petite woman who, who doesn't do a lot of exercise, you know, 13, 1400 calories may be ample every day. Well, yeah. you know, obviously that leaves room for many fewer servings of anything than the diet of, you know, a guy in the NFL who weighs 280 pounds and is, you know, intensely physically active and needs, 3,500, 3,600, 4,000 calories a day to, to feed his bulk and his activity. You know, so, so that diet is several times larger and he should have many more servings of fruits and vegetables. So he may need 15 and, you know, and she may need four, um, you know, right. because it's proportional to calories. So, you know, the, what I would argue is much better is to think proportionally, you know, to think of how you put your meals together. And if, you know, if the, the bulk of most of your meals over the course of a typical day come from vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds in some combination, and it's just a quarter of any given plate or dish that you allocate to the other stuff, whatever that may be, it, you know, it may be dairy, it may be meat, it may be poultry, it may be fish and seafood, it may be eggs. But you know all the other foods that are not those diverse plant foods is you know a quarter of a given plate or meal or dish. Well, then you know you're pretty much getting it right, and the number of servings that turns out to be will vary with how many total calories you eat every day. You know the overall size of your diet. It, it's really just in the service of simplifying dietary guidelines that you tell everybody five servings a day. But it you know th- there was never any real scientific you know, magic and that being just the right number for everybody.
2: Right. And so it depends on like how tall you are, how much you weigh and how your muscle mass basically in terms to to determine how many calories you should eat in a day.
3: Yeah. I mean, essentially two things determine our, our need for total food. One is our resting energy expenditure and that's basically how many calories we burn just to exist. And the other is the, the calories we burn and work. There's a bit more to it, but let's keep it simple because there's, there's also something called thermogenesis, which is the calories we waste generating heat. But if we just think in terms of resting energy expenditure or what people often call basal metabolism and, and exercise, then you know it stands to reason that, okay, bigger bodies need more calories to feed their basal metabolism. Why? Well, fairly obvious, I think, that if you have a horse and it's a lean horse and you have a mouse and it's a lean mouse, you know, they're comparably lean, that the horse is going to need more calories every day just because there's a lot more to the horse. That's a really helpful reality check. So you think about big people and small people, bigger people need more calories just to stay the size they are. So Mm -hmm. basal metabolism tends to require more for bigger people than smaller. So, men typically need more than women, other things being equal. And then the other issue is exercise. So, if you exercise intensely every day, you have to feed all that activity. And yes, there can be massive variation. You know, I, I think Michael Phelps, for example, you know, when, when oh, his he was. Diet. At, at Swimming. The, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think his diet has improved since those days. I think he, he was proud of the fact that he was running on a junk food diet which is regrettable back then but the simple fact is that you know when he was at the peak of his training for the olympics i think he was consuming twelve thousand calories a day i mean it's just off yeah. the chart you know that's, that, that's I, yeah that, that's incredible that's three times the total calorie intake of a typical player in the nfl so you know you, you can with intense physical training massively drive up your <laughs> calorie requirements and you know and then Obviously, if if the bulk of a 12,000 calorie diet is plant foods, you know, how many servings is that? I don't know, 27, 32, (laughs) you know, it's a lot, (laughs) right? Five would not be nearly enough.
2: Okay, we have to take a really quick commercial break, um, but stay tuned for more.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor, U.S. Montmorency's unique sour sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. And we're back, where today I'm speaking with Dr. Katz about his
2: recently published book, How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. I'm going to jump down. I've uh, jumped down in my um, in my list of questions because you mentioned the NFL, and one of the things that um, I don't know if you read anything about Tom Brady's diet, but he they had an article where like his chef basically published um, a list of what what he can and can't eat in a day for whatever reason, and this diet I just was I it was intensely irritating to me as. Any most diets are to tell you the truth. So basically, his diet like completely avoids any kind of nightshade vegetables because of the inflammation they cause. I mean, is there any like credibility to this? And I'm sure that there are certain like certain people, maybe certain health uh, factors to take into consideration. But for like a regular person, should we be avoiding tomatoes?
3: No, no, <laughs> and and you know, I, I honestly. I've always struggled to understand the nightshade category, which includes you know, tomatoes, eggplant, peas. You know, it's such a diverse class of, of compounds and, and and vegetables that winds up being lumped together. Um, so no, uh, you know, Tom Brady was a is a great quarterback, but a really lousy nutritionist. Now, the simple <laughs> fact is that the general pattern of the diet that he advocates is a plant. Dominant or plant exclusive diet, mostly made yes. up of healthy foods. So what he does eat winds up being a heck of a lot better than the typical American diet. So I have Absolutely. no real problem with what he does eat. The problem I have is with the cockamamie rules that he makes up and implies that you know, there's some mystical science underlying that. This is a generic problem, and you know that's a, it's a tendency in our culture to listen to non-experts. You know, so Gwyneth Paltrow can sell the public goop. <laughs> because, hey, she's a celebrity. Does Mm -hmm. she actually know anything about medicine or health or science? No, no. but, hey, she's Gwyneth Paltrow. Look how pretty she is. We'll buy what she's selling. Where's my credit card? You know, we're a bunch of nincompoops. So, you know, when you're willing to get advice about really important things from non-experts just because they are on TV or in the movies or especially attractive, you know, (laughs) you're, you're in a very dubious domain. So, yeah, Tom's a good looking guy and a really great quarterback. And so I'll have what he's having. Um, so again, what he eats, I think looks great. The reasons why he doesn't eat what he doesn't eat is mostly made up nonsense. And you know, if you have a sensitivity to nightshade vegetables and some people do, you need to avoid them. But the idea that everybody needs to avoid them is every bit as valid as, Hey, somebody's got a peanut allergy. Therefore peanuts are toxic for everybody. Uh, no, absolute nonsense. Peanuts are yeah. not toxic, but if you're allergic to them,
2: yes. don't eat them.
3: Right. So <laughs> now, Tom Brady, good quarterback, lousy nutritionist.
2: Okay, that's what I. That's what I thought. But you, you are right. Yeah, the rest of his diet. I mean, it's it is uh, very, very a um, lot of vegetables. Yeah, and,
3: and, and right, me. and and, that's and massive, right. absolutely, massively better than the typical American diet. Which, by the way, it's not hard to improve upon. So, right. yeah. So what he eats, it's fine. It's just the, the, the rules are made up nonsense. Yes.
2: Okay. So we haven't talked a lot about this, but you know, meat, yes or no, you, we are animals. Are we built to eat meat and do we need, well, I think you're going to say we don't need to have meat for a healthy diet, but like, you're are right. we, is there something like innate that we like, you know, we need to eat meat as humans or is no. it actually cultural?
3: It's cultural. Yeah, we don't need to. We clearly are adapted to be omnivores. We can eat meat. We can digest meat. Uh, we're obviously not carnivores. If anything, we're more like herbivores than we are like carnivores. But there's we're no not point. Not carnivores?
2: Did you say we're, we're not carnivores? We're not.
3: We're clearly not carnivores. No. We're, we're, because our, that's
2: our, what we need.
3: Yeah, I mean, right? Like you know, lions, for example, can only eat meat. They they, they don't oh, eat okay. any. Right? You know. So no, no, we're clearly not carnivorous. But we are obviously not just like herbivores either. We're in the middle. So we are constitutional omnivores. We, we can eat anything, uh, which basically just means we have choices. And, and by the way, if we were going to eat meat based on our adaptations, we ought to be eating the meat of wild animals, which is dramatically different from the meat of most domesticated animals. I'll give you a very quick for instance, and and you know, again, that we cover all of this in the book. Um, so the the meat that our Stone Age ancestors ate, the meat we're adapted to, is comparable to the meat of animals like say antelope. So the typical antelope steak, about seven percent of the calories come from fat. Almost none of it's saturated fat.
2: Sounds pretty lean. It's very
3: lean, <laughs> very lean. And and much of it's omega-3. So not only is it very lean, but the, the composition of the fat is really important. Compare that to typical steak from domestic, usually grain-fed cattle. 35% of the calories come from fat, so a five-fold difference. Most of it's saturated. None of it's omega-3. So massive difference in terms of overall nutrient distribution, and then massive difference again in terms of the specifics of those nutrient subcategories. So it's really misleading. To talk about, hey, we're adapted to eat meat. Where's the bacon? Where's the pepperoni? Where's the pastrami? You know, there was no Paleolithic pastrami. So, you know, if you want to argue, I think we're adapted to eat meat, we should be eating some meat in our diets, okay, get your bow and arrow and, you know, go looking for antelope <laughs> or venison. You know, and, and, and we don't know that that isn't best for humans. Maybe it is. Maybe a diet that's mostly plants but allows for some venison or some antelope would be better. We haven't done the studies. And I'm not enough of a uh, you know an ideologue to want to tell you that a, a plant-exclusive diet must be better just because I don't like the idea of shooting or, or, or killing animals. I, I really don't know. Nobody knows. Um, but what we do know is that the kind of meat most people are actually eating in the real world is generally bad for us, bad for the planet, and obviously bad for those animals who are raised you know, often in terrible conditions only to be slaughtered. So, you know, we, we abuse and, and torment them before we kill them. Uh, that's very different from going hunting. So, right. you know, again, I, I would say the, the right answer for most people is if you eat a lot of meat, eat a lot less. If you eat little meat and are willing to eat even less, eat even less. If you're willing to give up meat entirely do, by the way, I, you know, Mark, I, I think has some meat in his diet. I, but not much. I have none uh, if we're talking about mammals. So I, I, I gave up eating mammals as a kid and it had nothing to do with any knowledge of nutrition back then or any particular concern about the environment because I didn't know that, that, that threat yet. Uh, but I had dogs and I rode horses and loved them. And the, the animals that were food were too much like animals that were friends and members of my family. So I, mm-hmm. I just gave it up way back then for those reasons.
2: Um, okay. Well, what about plant-based meats? I mean, hyper-processed. Mm. But, but no
3: animals are harmed. Right. So, so that's the issue. So it, you know, and, and by the way, if there's one really critical theme in the book, it's instead of what we ask that question again and again and again, because everything comes down to that. So if you are eating highly processed plant-based meats, because you love meat, you're not willing to give it up but this tastes enough like it that you're willing to say, what the heck? Well, that's good because you know it, it's probably better for you and certainly no worse for you than the generally rather processed meat you may have been eating. It's certainly much better for the environment in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and water utilization, and it's certainly kinder and gentler to our fellow species. So again, if you think about three key considerations related to diet, what does it do to human health? What does it do to planetary health? And what does it do to other creatures? Well, plant-based meat gets two checks out of three. Definitely better for the planet. Definitely better for other creatures. Is it better for human health? Well, compared to what? You know, again, if you are eating McDonald's hamburgers and are swapping that out for uh, plant-based meat, yeah, it probably is better. If you tell me, you know, no, I was eating, you know, wild salmon, lean turkey, and I'm swapping that out for you know, highly processed plant-based meat. Well, then I'm not so sure. So now it's still two out of three. But I think the real role for these foods is not to talk people who are willing to eat beans and lentils into now eating highly processed versions of plant foods. So for example, I have no personal interest in these highly processed plant-based meat because I actually love plants. You know, I, I, I don't mind that my plants taste like plants. I don't want my veggie burger to bleed. Thank you very much. But if you tell me, hey, the only way I'm ever going to eat a more plant-based diet is if you give me plants that taste like meat, well then, okay, these these foods provide a new means of converting you and reducing the collective impact we have on the planet and our fellow creatures, so it's a good thing. So it really depends, what are they replacing? I think that it all comes down to that.
2: Um, okay, so what about... Um, and I, I want to be cognizant of time, um, for you, but I of course have a few more questions. And one thing that I, um, you know, I'm always so curious about is sodium. And this is something where I think the, I think like the science is pretty much in, but yet there'll always be like one or two sort of rogue, uh, articles saying that it's not that bad for you, but like, yeah, what are you? is it are you the general rule of thumb do you stick to like the 23 2400 milligrams per day
3: yeah i think that's reasonable and and by the way an easy way to sort of track that is it's relatively close you think about the typical american diet the prototype is 2000 calories a day and you're not supposed to get more than 2300 2400 milligrams of sodium a day that's 1.2 milligrams per calorie so an easy way to think of that is on average milligrams of sodium and calories should be about equal. And if they're much, you know, if you have much more sodium than that, your diet's high in salt. Mm -hmm. If, if it were much lower than that, your diet might be low in salt. So this is, this is another theme in the book. Mark and I talk a lot about balance. And we say, look, you know, there's way too much dogma when it comes to dietary advice in America. And that's why people can sell so much nonsense, you know, fad diets and all that, because everybody's very dogmatic. And it's easy to persuade people that your dogma is better than the dogma they knew yesterday and Mm -hmm. try my dogma today. Uh, We favor a dogma-free menu and say, look, you know, sodium is an essential nutrient, but most Americans get way too much. It's mostly coming from processed food. And too much of anything is bad just because it's too much, not because the nutrient is bad. So you know we don't have to have the debate, is sodium good, bad, or in between. It's an essential nutrient. We need some. The right amount is good. Too little is bad. Too much is bad. But most Americans get way too much. It's associated with hypertension, the risk of stroke. So if the prevailing problem is that we get too much, then it's good to get less. And so we recommend eating less processed food, and getting much less sodium. We don't recommend freaking out about the salt shaker on your table because that's really not the problem. But you can yeah. solve the sodium problem without fixating on sodium by eating much less highly processed food, which, by the way, is good for you anyway and will also take care of your excess of sodium. So that's basically mm-hmm. the way we construct the argument. Uh, you know, a typical American diet provides generally well over 3,500 milligrams of sodium a day. And if you're talking about total salt, that's six grams a day. So, you know, it's easily twice the upper limit of, of what would be healthy. And that means we could reduce it a whole lot before we ever have to worry about the issue of too little. There were some arguments in the scientific literature that we don't know exactly what the lower limit should be. And that's true. But that's like saying you know, we, we shouldn't have any speed limit at all until <laughs> we define the safest low speed for people to go. No, nonsense. We, you know, we, 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 can, we can safely cap the top without yeah. necessarily figuring out you know, what is optimal at the bottom. They're two totally different issues. Um, and you know, we know what the prevailing problem tends to be. People drive too fast, and that puts them at risk. So most people eat too much sodium. We ought to fix yeah. what's broken we're pragmatists in the book I've been a pragmatist in my career in public health and as a clinician um, you know really we ought to direct our efforts to fix things to where they're currently broken and you know it certainly would be silly to say hey we can't fix the fact that Americans eat way too much sodium and it's doing a lot of harm because we don't yet know exactly what the safe minimum is okay well then make sure that people stay well above what we think the safe minimum might be but Let's fix what's broken.
2: It's funny. I was I, uh, years ago. I was training for the New York City Marathon, and it was in the middle of the summer. And we had my training group had like a dietitian who came in and kind of counseled people. And um, you know, for one session, and the dietitian was like, "You know, the sodium like rules those don't apply to you right now. <laughs> like, you're just I think the amount of like sweat and um, that." that, you know, comes from any kind of like training. So it made me wonder if it just, if there's, it seemed like it was variable depending on kind of your overall athletic, uh, you know,
3: yes and no. Yeah. Yes and no. And obviously if, if you, you know, anything that you're using up a lot of, you need to replace more of. And, and so, you know, if you are engaged in intense physical activity, doing a lot of sweating, you're losing sodium. But even then, um, as an athlete, the last thing you want is a diet of highly processed junk food. Well, no, so, yeah, definitely
2: not highly processed. Yeah,
3: so, yeah. you know, it's very unlikely that you'll have too little sodium if you eat a balanced diet. There is sodium in vegetables. There's sodium in uh, grains and, and legumes. And so, you know, it, it's not hard to get enough. It really isn't. Um, and then, of course, you know, most people are going to have some processed foods, and there's a salt shaker. Um so, yeah, there, there can be an argument for electrolyte replacement with intense activity, sports drinks. But not for most people. Yeah, But most people don't need it. Most people get much more than they need. And no matter what you do, you want a high-performance body. You need to put in high-performance fuel. So avoiding highly processed food is still good advice, and that fixes the sodium problem. And then if you find I'm sweating a lot, I have a craving for salt, okay, satisfy that craving for salt. It may be your body telling you something.
2: Um okay so what about um what about I want to save the last like two a couple minutes for immunity because um I don't know if you've heard there's a there's a pandemic
3: <laughs> I have heard that yeah.
2: there's a virus going around <laughs> before yeah. before we we um I have a few questions about those I want to talk just briefly about like vitamins and supplements Um, and your general approach to this, because I mean, I personally have had doctors say, nah, vitamins, like you really don't need them. But then for women who are pregnant, for instance, it's like a, kind of like a mandatory type of a thing. So where do you guys fall?
3: Yeah. So we, we oppose dogma in both directions. So the idea that you can market any given nutrient supplement to everybody willy nilly is marketing, not science. But the idea that there's no value is just silly. Um, one of the things we need to remember is that fortification is just supplementation by a different delivery vehicle. And we put folate in the food supply. We put vitamin A and D in the food supply. And we did it with good reason because there was massive evidence that the public was generally deficient and there was clear benefit when people got more of those nutrients. Well, that's, that's proof that supplementation is a good thing if you supplement the right nutrients for the right people. So, you know I, I think one of the key considerations is to recognize that the word supplement begs the question we tend not to ask supplemental to what supplemental to the nutrients you're getting from food, especially when people are not eating optimally, there are a lot of deficiencies uh, we don't get enough zinc we don't get enough omega three we certainly don't get enough fiber we can benefit from vitamin D, and on and on it goes so you know I would argue, and actually we we this is one of the things that that we do at, at uh, my company diet i d you know, Ideally, you should know what nutrients you're getting from food, identify specific nutrient gaps, and then think about supplementation so that it's tailored to you. That's really personalizing nutrition to fill the nutrient gaps that your diet is leaving behind. If you can optimize your diet, so much the better. But even an optimal diet may not provide all the B12 you need, may not provide optimal levels of zinc, may not provide all the omega-3 you need, certainly won't provide the vitamin D that you need. So even then, even with a truly optimal diet, there are going to be reasons why judicious supplementation may make sense. So, you know, again, it, it's not a panacea by any means, and it's supplemental to diet, never a substitute for the, for the quality of your diet. But if you take the right supplements that plug gaps in your particular diet, absolutely there's a there there.
2: Um, okay, so immunity in, in, in this, like, COVID world. I think there are probably a lot of people who are wondering: Are there certain foods that boost immunity? So, like, we've got a virus. I need to be eating way more oranges and taking turmeric elixirs.
3: Yeah, right. And and that's true and very false. Very specific. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and sure, you know, in fact, you know, the vitamin C coming from citrus fruit is good, and turmeric or curcumin absolutely does have anti-inflammatory properties, and. Um, so yeah, you could make the argument about specific foods. We actually uh, Diet ID sponsored a really terrific webinar about food and immunity. So I was privileged to convene with a number of really expert colleagues, and and we were all quite emphatic that um, you know overall diet quality massively influences immune system function and a balanced immune response but we were equally adamant that it would be silly to rely on some particular superfood to do the job. So the issue here again is balance. Um, What I would encourage people who are concerned about their immunity and COVID risk to do is think that there's never been a better time to improve the overall quality of your diet. A balanced array of minimally processed plant foods provides uh, antioxidants that protect your cells, uh, provide a range of nutrients that help your immune system function and, and there, you know, there are many, many layers to a healthy immune system. You want hormonal balance because the hormonal system or endocrine system kind of regulates what the immune system does. You need construction material. The, the immune system is cells. It's white blood cells. It's lymphocytes. It's neutrophils. Those need to be built every day. So you need a full array of proteins and fats. Uh, and then, of course, you, know, you you need things like antioxidants so that the chemical weapons your immune system uses to fight bad actors like COVID-19 don't do too much damage to your healthy cells. So it's, you know, it's not like there's just one nutrient. It's not like you just want omega-3 or you just want an anti-inflammatory herb like turmeric. You really need a wide array of balanced construction materials to populate your bone marrow, to, to build healthy blood cells, to optimize your circulation, to balance your hormones. On and on it goes. And, and no one food will do that. And the only thing that really will do that is a balanced, sensible, optimized diet consisting mostly of a variety of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. You know, the answer is always the same the details yeah. of why it's the answer. And, and thank goodness, because imagine if you had to eat one way to prevent diabetes and another to prevent heart disease, and one way to prevent heart disease and another to protect yourself from COVID, we'd always be in a dilemma. Oh, God, what, what am I trying to achieve today? You know, Today I'm worried about COVID, so I have to radically alter the diet I was using yesterday to make myself healthy in general. That would be awful. It's not true. An optimal diet is optimal across almost every consideration. So the, the details of why it's optimal change But it is the same general answer, and thank goodness for that. And the other thing people should know is this general dietary pattern, wide array of fruits and vegetables, all the the nutrients they provide, and all the rest that I've described, uh, this absolutely can make a difference immediately. Uh, We've done studies over the years looking at vascular function. A single meal can affect it. And how your blood vessels behave influences your immune system. So you can start to alter your vulnerability to COVID by improving your next meal. You certainly can do it over a span of days. And you can make a massive difference over a span of just weeks. So that's real. I mean, this is a teachable moment, folks. The things that mattered about diet and health over time matter acutely at this time, and it's all one basic set of answers. So it's a tremendous opportunity to do yourself good in the short term, protecting yourself and family from the risk of severe COVID infection, and to establish for all of you the gift that keeps on giving, because by eating optimally, you'll really be laying the foundation for long-term good health too.
2: And so does this, is that the same um, advice you would give, like, are there any particular foods or nutrients you should eat if you are sick, so you do get sick, um, that could help kind of boost immunity or is it just... uh,
3: Same basic basic answers, but I I would recommend, there's anecdotal evidence in support of um, vitamin C. So I'd say, what the heck, you know, it's not going to hurt you. Maybe it'll help. I'd say, you know, take two grams of vitamin C a day. It's clear that uh, most Americans are relatively deficient in zinc, and zinc is a critical nutrient for, for lymphocyte function, and lymphocytes are the primary white blood cells that fight off viral infections, so I would say take 30 milligrams of zinc a day. Um, if you're eating optimally before, though, I don't think you really need to change your diet. Um, mm-hmm. I would just make sure to plug a couple of gaps. Vitamin D supplementation, if you weren't taking it before, 1,000 IU mm-hmm. of vitamin D a day also makes sense, and maybe a few other things. But, um, but no, I, you know, I, I actually thought I had COVID. I tested negative. I don't know if I did or didn't, but my test was negative and Mm -hmm. I didn't see any reason for altering my diet. Um, if my diet had not been optimal before though, uh, it would have given me a new reason to think about getting it there.
2: Um, all right. Well, I don't know if you, um, heard a few minutes ago, but it was seven o'clock and, uh, there we have like quite a, quite a great little cheering section, um, in my area of Brooklyn right now. So I wanted to extend that. I didn't, I didn't share out the window today, but I'm on the phone with you. And my understanding is that you did a lot of work, um, on the front lines recently in treating COVID patients. Is that right?
3: Well, I think a lot is saying too much, but I chipped in. So I volunteered <laughs> to help in. out. Yeah. I chipped in, uh, you know, I, I signed up as a volunteer to help the, the overwhelmed hospitals in New York and I did three 12-hour shifts in an emergency department in the Bronx and you know my thinking was that my 36 hours in in the emergency room in the covid crisis was a small contribution but if a thousand people do the same or 10,000 people do the same it's a massive difference and that's really what i was hoping was to be one small part of a really big wave of people and i think that's the case but yeah it it gave me you know obviously a close up view of this um allowed me to help in ways that that felt important to me as a physician um, and yeah, I definitely appreciate those cheers that go up in the city. So thank you. Well, for that. thank you.
2: Well, thank you for your service. It is, um, much needed and much appreciated. Uh, and I think that everyone who you treated in the Bronx was very, very lucky. All right. We'll have to leave it there, but Dr. Katz, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank
3: you, Jen. Pleasure to be with you and you stay well.
2: Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors as well. Our show engineer is Cheat Paul and show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liu and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com/slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization